Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting a new book, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. Now, I suppose there was a time when the book of Psalms needed no introduction. In fact, for much of Christian history, the book of Psalms was by far the most familiar book of the Bible to the average believer. During the Middle Ages, the Psalter was the only part of the Bible that a lay Christian was likely to own. A great part of medieval piety was bound up in meditation upon the Psalms. Martin Luther, for example, said, The Psalter is a little Bible and the summary of the Old Testament. One verse of the Psalms is sufficient for the meditation of the day. And he who at the end of the day finds himself fully possessed of its sense and spirit may consider his time well spent. The Psalms taught the believer about the Bible. As Luther said, it was widely considered the Bible in miniature. But more than that, the Psalms taught the believer how to respond to God. St. Augustine told his people, he said, form thy spirit by the affection of the psalm. If the psalm breathes the spirit of prayer, do you pray? If it is filled with groaning, groan also thyself. If it is gladsome, do thou rejoice also. If it encourages hope, then hope thou in God. If it calls to godly fear, then tremble thou before the divine majesty, for all things therein contained are mirrors to reflect our own real characters. Let the heart do what the words signify. I think that is very significant, and and I think that is a way of reading the Psalms that is increasingly foreign to contemporary people. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, An Experiment in Criticism, said that reading, rightly understood and rightly practiced, seeks an enlargement of our being. We want to be more than ourselves. We want to see with other eyes, to imagine with other imaginations, to feel with other hearts, as well as with our own, closed quote. Well, if that's true for regular reading, how much more is it true when it comes to reading the Psalms? We read the Psalms to pray with another person's heart, to pray with another person's words. These Psalms deepen our spiritual and devotional bandwidth. They allow us to pray with, alongside, and even inside Holy Spirit-inspired and authorized human prayers. There is a depth to prayer and a height to prayer that you will likely never achieve if you are not guided and bounded by the Psalms. And that is perhaps their sweetest blessing and dearest gift to the contemporary reader. But that is certainly not to say that they lack content. They do not. They are full of wisdom and instruction and also prophecy. Many of the Psalms have a legitimate double meaning. William Plumer, for example, says, A thing spoken of David may be literally true of him. 
Thus, we have the primary sense. But David was a type of Christ. And what he says primarily of himself may have a secondary fulfillment in Christ. And so we get the spiritual sense, close quote. As we go through these Psalms, we will attempt to meditate and reflect upon both of those inspired meanings. Today, we're going to be reading Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Many Bible reading plans uh, suggest reading these Psalms together and with good reason. Most commentators believe that they are meant to be read together and that they serve together as an introduction to the book as a whole. So J. Alec Machir, for example, says, Have you noticed that Psalm 2 ends where Psalm 1 begins? With a blessing pronounced on the individual described in Psalm 1-1. And on all those described in Psalm 2-12. This has the effect of bracketing the two Psalms together. Now, let me read to you the verses that he cites in that statement. Psalm 1-1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 2.12 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, if Machir is right, then the Holy Spirit has so ordained the introduction to the Psalms so as to hold up the standard of righteousness in the one and the hope of righteousness in the other. The Psalms are truly the Bible in miniature. There is law, there is wisdom, there is soul-expanding prayer, and there is the hope of salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Now, with all that being said, I hope you have your Bible open to Psalm 1. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We've already said how the Psalms are often described as the Bible in miniature. Well, you could almost make the case that these two verses are the Bible in miniature. From start to finish, God does not change, and God does not alter the way in which he has determined to bless men and women. In the very beginning, we learned that there was a connection between obedience and blessing. God put the man and the woman in the garden and in the path of blessing and made every good thing available to them in perpetuity, provided that they did not transgress his commands, which of course they did, whereupon they forfeited all of the blessings of God. The moral physics of this universe is not difficult to reverse engineer. God has designed this world to receive the blessings of heaven through obedient humans. The problem of the Bible, of course, is that after the fall, obedient humans are in desperately short supply. And yet, God does not alter the plan. He doesn't say, well then, I will bless partial obedience or I will bless good intentions. No. Here we see that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
So, blessed is the man who does not turn to the left or to the right. He stays inside the boundaries, and not only does he stay inside the boundaries, but his obedience is from the heart. The text says his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's what God is after. He's he's not after begrudging obedience. He is after delight. He wants us to trust and love and delight in the word of the Lord. That's what he's been after since day one. The plan has not changed. God will fill the universe with human beings made in his image who love, trust, and delight in the law of the Lord. That will happen. It's happening right now. The future heaven and earth are being populated right now with those who delight in God's word. That's what the gospel does. At the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The point of the gospel, Paul says, in this closing benediction to the Romans, the point of the gospel is to rescue and rehabilitate people such that they are capable again of offering and manifesting the obedience of faith. That's what the gospel does. The the gospel makes us delight again and trust again in the word of our creator. That's what it does because the plan hasn't changed. God will release the blessings of heaven through human obedience. So this universe needs people who trust and obey God from the heart. That is the person who is blessed and no other. The psalmist says about this person in verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The original temptation from the original tempter suggested that if human beings wanted to truly flourish, they would need to go outside the parameters that had been established for them in God's word. Adam and Eve believed that lie. They went outside, and they found themselves withering and wandering under the curse of God. But the the blessed man, the righteous man, does not wander and does not wither. He is planted in the place of blessing. In all that he does, he prospers. Verse 4 now begins to provide the contrast. In biblical wisdom, and this is generally considered a wisdom psalm, there is always two ways Okay, there's the way that leads to life, and there's the way that leads to death. The Bible is not big on third ways. There are two ways in the Bible, and you want to be on the right one. The wicked are on the wrong one. That's what we find out in verses 4 to 6. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So, in contrast to the permanence of the righteous, the wicked are impermanent. Their apparent blessings 
are eventually wiped off the board. Now, this aspect of biblical wisdom is repeated and explored throughout the canon of Scripture. Think of Job. So much of the dialogue between Job and his friends revolves around this fact that Job looks at the world and says, I see many righteous people suffering and I see many wicked people appearing to prosper. How does that work? So much of, of wisdom literature is dedicated to wrestling with that question. What the Bible is saying here is that the wicked may prosper for a moment. In fact, wickedness often does lead to short-term gain in a fallen world. But the Bible says those gains don't last. They will be rooted up, sometimes in this life, because blessings seized wrongly are often lost quickly. Riches hastily gained are easily squandered. But even if they are not lost in this life... Even if justice doesn't come in the here and now, it surely will at the final judgment. Jesus said that. He said in Matthew 13, 40 to 43, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So imagine a game of Monopoly in which some of the players are cheating. They're not collecting $200 every time they pass go. They're collecting $200 on every turn. And they're putting hotels and properties when they only own one of the three pieces of real estate in the line. Well, that's not fair. That's not according to the rules. That's cheating. And for a while, it seems like the cheaters are the ones getting ahead. But of course, it does not last. Because God is watching the game. That's what the psalm says. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. At the end of the game, the Lord shows up. And he wipes off every ill-gotten gain. And only what has been done in righteousness, only what has been done in faith, will pass on into eternity. That's an encouraging word. But it's also a concerning word because none of us have walked the way of righteousness perfectly. We've all turned to the left and to the right, and none of us has desires that run directly down the center of that lane. And realizing that prepares us nicely for the hope that is offered in Psalm 2. We begin reading that now at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I love what Matthew Henry says about this psalm. He says, as the foregoing psalm was moral, so that's Psalm 1, and showed us our duty, so this psalm, Psalm 2, is evangelical and shows us our Savior. That's the rhythm of Scripture, isn't it? We see the standard and we realize that we fall short of the standard, so we fall on our faces and we admit our need of a Savior. That's the rhythm of the Bible, and that's the rhythm of these Psalms. You read a Psalm, you read Psalm 1, and you see the path of blessing. 
but you realize that you haven't walked that path. You've turned, you've strayed, you've transgressed, you've sinned, and so you seek a Savior. And you don't have very far to look, just one more psalm. Psalm 2 is about the Savior. It's about the Lord's anointed. In the first couple of verses, we learn that the Savior will be despised and rejected by men, particularly ruling men. We think, of course, of Herod and Pilate, and we are right to think of them because they are so implied in Acts 4.25, where this psalm is cited. We jump back into the text at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Herod and Pilate did their worst, but it didn't affect the will of God. It was God who set Jesus upon the cross. Ultimately, we shouldn't be scandalized by that statement. It is nothing more than what we read in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. Jesus didn't die because Herod and Pilate were jerks and tyrants, although they were. Jesus died ultimately because it was the eternal will of God. That isn't to say that Pilate and Herod were puppets. It isn't to say that, that their will was overwhelmed. No, 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 that's not the case. And that certainly isn't to say that they, they won't be judged. They certainly will. They were acting responsibly, but their responsible actions served the eternal decree of God. The text is very clear on that. God is the primary actor in this story. Verse 7 goes on to say, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The speaker in verses 7 to 9 is the son, the king, the Messiah. He says that the stability of his kingdom rests upon the will of God, the fixity of God's purpose, and the relationship that exists between the Son and the Father. Those things do not change, and therefore his kingdom cannot be shaken. The psalm concludes in verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Tim Keller says here, To kiss his Son is to rest in and live for him. I think that's well said. The Son is the blessed man. He is the one who obeys God perfectly, and who positions himself to mediate all of the blessings of God upon the earth. The Apostle Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Speaking of Jesus, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Everything God ever said he would give to us, every possible blessing and kindness is now available for us in the person of Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, 2 Corinthians 1.20. That's the gospel, right? That's our hope, Old Testament and new. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those, of course, over at the website, www.intotheword.ca. I hope you found our new app and are making good use of it. We're so excited about that. And we would love for you to make use of that. Download that. You can connect with us on Facebook. I hope that you do that too. You can connect there. We post daily encouragements and conversation starters, user reflections. Great way to get connected. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.